0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the Hot Zone writer Richard Preston on life in a pandemic.
1: When your life is at stake, you get smart really fast.
0: Why this longtime virus watcher says COVID-19 isn't a surprise.
1: The human species packed together in these enormous super cities. What you have is a kind of a Petri dish for a huge outbreak.
0: And the American unemployment rate jumped to 4.4%. That's likely just the beginning. Former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew on business and the government's plans to help Main Street.
2: For these small businesses, it's a matter of life or death. And if they can't turn on the lights, then you don't get people back to work and you don't have a quick recovery.
0: It's Friday, April 3rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now.
3: Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross
0: Sorkin. Today is, you guessed it, Jobs Friday. Well, it might be hard to remember what day it is, but it's the first Friday of the month, and as usual, the Labor Department released how many American jobs were lost or created in the month prior. But the schedule is pretty much the only usual thing about today's report. The Labor Department takes its monthly data from a reference week. In this case, three weeks ago, from Sunday, March 8th through Saturday, March 14th, the U.S. lost over 700,000 jobs. In that time, the unemployment rate jumped almost one full percent to 4. 4% of Americans out of work. These numbers end nearly nine and a half years of positive employment, of job gains. But as I mentioned, they're from before many of the closures and stay-at-home orders around the country. So these stats are already out of date. It's really the April jobs report out in early May that we'll need to keep our eye on for a more accurate representation of the pandemic's impact on the workforce. The number that still has us reeling though is the jobless claims report from Thursday. In the last two weeks alone, 10 million Americans have newly filed for unemployment benefits. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin.
4: The March unemployment or employment report, I should say, uh, showing uh, a loss though, it is an unemployment report right now, of 701,000 jobs last month. But because the data was collected uh, in the middle of March, uh, we, we know it still doesn't capture the true impact of all the coronavirus-related layoffs so far. Joining us right now to talk about jobs, the government's $2 trillion relief package, and what may come next is Jack Lew. He's, of course, the former Treasury uh, Secretary of the United States. Uh, Good morning to you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Thank you for joining us. Uh, First, on the jobs numbers, um, where do you think we are and how bad do you think it gets? Well, good morning, Andrew. Good to see
2: that you're all well. Um, I think if you look at the jobs numbers, there should be no surprise that they're showing an increase, and if anything, it understates with the impact. Um, It's clear that when you shut the economy down, tens of millions of 10 million people are applying for unemployment, out of work, looking uh, for the future. The question, I think, is not to overreact to these numbers, which are pretty much what we expected, whether they're a little above or below expectations. And to think about what are we doing to make sure that people have what they need while they're unemployed or while they're out of work. And how do we make sure that the economy can be turned back on as quickly as possible? Um, That recovery is going to be the thing that determines where the economy goes in the future. And I think that when you're looking at a recession that's caused by a public health crisis, everything is driven by the health issues. What we can do as a matter of policy is make sure that we maximize the chance that we come out of this as quickly as possible.
4: Well, then let me ask you about those policies, including this two trillion um, dollar package that's been put together today. Of course, uh, the small business loan program is supposed to begin in earnest, though. We're obviously hearing uh, some questions and concerns about how quickly it's going to roll out. Uh, Some banks still trying to go over uh, the information in terms of how it's how it's put together. Um, Your assessment of that program and whether you think it's going to be enough.
2: Well, first of all, we have to uh, embrace the enormity of the undertaking. We're talking about a volume of activity that we've never seen out of the Small Business Administration. We've never seen out of the lenders who participate in it. So the execution of this is absolutely critical to the success. Let's remember the goal here. The goal here is to make sure that people have money to live on while the economy is shut down and that businesses are still there to turn on the lights when we get through this. That means that we have to suspend some of the normal considerations, which, frankly, were central to my policy considerations for the three decades I was in government. Usually you ask a lot of questions about efficiency. You ask a lot of questions about false payments. You ask a lot of questions about moral hazard that's not really the concern here. The concern here is getting money out quickly, getting businesses and people through the moment. Now, when you look at what is being rolled out, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, of, of a, of a, a contradiction. On the one hand, you know, there's 100% federal guarantee, so banks have no credit risk. On the other hand, they are going to have to underwrite these loans. And I hope that the rules make it clear that there won't be micromanagement so that if there's some false piece of information that a bank didn't know, um, they have to worry about their exposure on that. The reality is, it's okay to make some mistakes here if we get most of the money out to the right place. The challenge here is not to get it perfect, it's to get it out and to be close. I think that's very different from the largest businesses where there's a proper concern for very, very detailed oversight because of A, the amounts involved and quite frankly, the resources that those businesses have to get through this crisis, whether or not the government assistance is there. For these small businesses, it's a matter of life or death. And if they can't turn on the lights, then you don't get people back to work and you don't have a quick recovery.
4: So what are you suggesting as it relates to big businesses?
2: So look, I think on big businesses, there needed to be a response. I'm not critical that there was a response. Um, I think that the debate in Congress, uh, which, frankly, slowed down consideration for a couple of days, was on how to provide a degree of oversight and reasonable conditions. I think the conditions that they put on the big businesses are right. Um, you know, there shouldn't be uh, dividends or stock buybacks or big employee uh, you know, executive compensation packages. I think the question of who gets the loans, how the decisions are made— Um, Transparency is critical. I think it's very unfortunate that there's now a growing divide over whether or not that oversight will be allowed to work. We are not done dealing with the, the problems created by the health crisis. There's going to be a need for trust. If there is not clear oversight, and if the administration, through signing statements and criticizing congressional attempts to have meaningful oversight, undermines that agreement on this very important bill, it will make it much harder to deal with what needs to be done next.
4: Let me ask you a a broader question, Mr. Secretary, um, and we only have a minute. Long term, how do you think this changes politics and how do you think it changes the politics of business? Uh, For so long, the world of business has looked for uh, lower tax rates. Um, You know, we've all had conversations about whether we should have higher taxes or lower taxes. Obviously, all that's gotten pushed down. And yet here we are again in a situation where the government is effectively providing insurance for everybody. Uh, They've done it now this time. And we had this 10 years ago. You could argue we had this after 9-11.
2: I think this is very different from uh, 10 years ago. The small businesses that are closing and even most of the large businesses that are suffering had nothing to do with the crisis. Uh, Some of them were in weaker condition going in. And there are legitimate questions for big businesses that did big stock buybacks, how much they're equity holders should pay. This is a question of a health crisis, giving time for the health crisis to pass and being able to turn the economy back on. It's singular in my experience. It's not like anything else.
4: Mr. Secretary, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so very much for joining us today.
0: Next, The Hot Zone author Richard Preston on the speed of pandemic spread. It's a small world after all.
1: More than half of the people on the planet now live in cities close together where something can spread easily like a match thrown into a barn full of hay.
0: Squawk Pod. We'll be right back.
4: Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors.
0: Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson,
4: we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. You're
0: listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Thank mm-hmm. you best-selling author Richard Preston has been writing about epidemics and infectious disease for decades. His 1994 book The Hot Zone about the Ebola virus was the loose source material for the movie Outbreak. He's also written about bioterrorism, the eradication of smallpox and anthrax in the wake of the September 2001 terror attacks. His books typically begin as articles in The New Yorker magazine. Preston's newest book is Crisis in the Red Zone, and it picks up on the 2014-2015 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And fun fact, Preston has an asteroid named for him. Asteroid 3792 Preston orbits near Mars, and according to the author's official bio, could someday slam into the Earth. That's all we need. Richard Preston joined Squawkbox Box today. Here's Becky Quick kicking things off.
3: Richard, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Hot Zone scared me to death, um, but you chronicled uh, in such an amazing way how these outbreaks can take place, what happens, and what we need to do next. I'm I'm guessing this pandemic didn't come as a huge surprise to you.
1: It didn't. Actually, uh, some of the experts I've been talking with, as much as 25 years ago, predicted that a big pandemic could occur with coronavirus. This has been on the radar screen of some experts for quite some time.
3: What uh, is so significant about coronavirus? Why is it so deadly to humans and so dangerous?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's because nature, in the first place, nature is full of viruses. Everything on the planet that lives, from bacteria to blue whales, gets infected with its own kinds of viruses. Coronaviruses live in many kinds of animals out there in nature. Just for example, bats in China and in Central Asia, from that's the type of animal from which we think this new coronavirus came from originally. There are thought to be around 5,000 different bat coronaviruses out there. And these these things, uh, they give a bat a runny nose. It's not a big deal. It's basically a bat cold. But viruses have a tendency to jump species. Uh, they find a new host. And right now on the planet, there are 7.5 billion people. We represent an enormous new uh, unexplored host for these viruses. And the, this coronavirus pandemic is the third major outbreak of a coronavirus to occur in the human species. And there will be certainly more. Uh, you, you, we hear uh, some people saying, well, this is a once in a 100 year event. It is absolutely not. It is part of a pattern of emerging viruses Viruses coming out of the world's ecosystems and finding their way into the human species, and then, as we now see, can do incredible damage. Uh, And there will be more in the future. There are going to be further pandemics. We don't know when. We don't know what it will be. Maybe another coronavirus, maybe something else. But what we do know, or what we can see, is that the human species packed together in these enormous super cities cities with populations of 20 million or more, and New York, greater New York, is an example of that. It's got a population of about 20 million. So you take you know, the population of Texas, most of it, you pack it into one city, and what you have is a kind of a Petri dish or a breeding ground for a, a huge outbreak. Uh, and I think the, uh, the major thing that we we're taking away from this pandemic is that uh pandemic and public health are now a matter of national security.
5: Yeah. Hey Richard the uh it, it's frightening it is. It, and even swine flu I think was what 500 and almost 600,000 people killed. It, do we take any solace that that maybe if if it the mortality rate is too high it, it it's self-defeating for the virus? I, I mean if it was I can only imagine if this were Ebola and it it was 50 percent fatality or something like that, how frightening this, this, it's frightening enough, uh, obviously, what what we're seeing right now and deadly enough. But do viruses that are much more uh, fatal, do they have a hard time if the the host dies and they're unable to spread? Or do we have to worry about something that could be 10 times worse than this someday?
1: Well, unfortunately, I think we, we do have to think about all possibilities, you know, if you get a lawyer, the lawyer um, is, is there to think about worst case scenarios and to try to protect you from them, even if they don't occur, because sometimes they do. And I think a worst case scenario could be worse than coronavirus. You could have a, a higher fatality rate. And there's evidence that viruses in the short term uh, can, can really be extremely deadly and also spread fast. Um, so a host population can get cut down by a large amount. Uh, I think that we, we're not without our defenses. And one of the most important defenses that we have, actually, is as, as humans, we have um, altruism, kindness, and an ability to work with teams and to self-sacrifice. And we're seeing that right now with, I think, fundamentally heroic work of medical care workers across the United States. Uh, They are doing incredible and uh, sort of amazing job of just carrying on in the face of danger and great difficulty. And that includes uh, regular workers who work in nursing care facilities and retirement communities. You know, they're putting putting themselves in harm's way to protect us. But I think with a pandemic like this, there, you know any crisis also brings opportunities. And we have an opportunity here, I think, to get focused on the, the real situation of the human species on the planet right now with regard to these viruses. Um, they are clearly a threat, but we can do things to deal with it. And one thing that I think is going to be essential is that nations around the world, starting with the United States really have to develop a a series of platforms for rapidly developing vaccines and new kinds of antiviral drugs, which can be done. It's very feasible. And then in addition to that, we have to develop surge manufacturing capability. The ability, you know, we're going to have a coronavirus vaccine at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. But the real question is, can we make enough of it to make a difference. And that's where surge manufacturing of these new kinds of drugs and vaccines is going to be a critical part of the process.
3: Hey, Richard, you mentioned uh, the workers who are really throwing themselves into the, into the fray with this, uh, those on the front lines, those healthcare workers who are taking great personal risk to try and keep the rest of us safe. What do you think when you see people who are ignoring social distancing rules, flocking on the beaches, hanging out with friends in parks, Um, obviously not following the directions that we've been given.
1: Well, you know, uh, I wrote about the Ebola, the great Ebola epidemic in Africa a few years back. And when Ebola first broke out in villages and then quickly got into the cities, an awful lot of regular people didn't believe that Ebola was real. They felt that it was a hoax and, in any case, wasn't that serious. People didn't really pay attention. But then when the virus got into their homes and into their communities and they began seeing its effects, they woke up fast. You know, when your life is at stake, uh, you, you, you get smart really fast. And in Africa, what happened was, and I'm sure it's going to happen in the United States, that when people finally realize that this, this thing is real and it's a real threat, um, they're going to absolutely go to social distancing. This happened in Africa. And when regular people just kind of woke up to the reality of it, West Africans um, went hardcore for social distancing. And I mean, it was quite harsh. For example, nobody would touch anybody who looked sick out in public. Second, um, people even engaged in social distancing within their own families. So it, it was the hardest thing you can imagine. if a child in a family broke with Ebola, the parents had to they, they had to force themselves to give the child to one of these um, one of these camps with white tents to take the child out of the family to save the lives of everyone else in the family, but they would give their child over to a camp with the likelihood that they would never see their child again, and yet they did it and it stopped Ebola.
5: Hey, Richard, just, we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm just trying to figure out all the things we can do. Now, not all these viruses have the same, um, you know, they, they, they don't come from the same places, obviously, but do you think that, that maybe uh, wet markets really need to be looked at? You mentioned that, you know, bats get these viruses and they get a cold. Uh, is it easier to jump to humans if you're eating these exotic things or would it help To to shut the wet markets or the the viruses will just be generated in some other fashion?
1: Yes, unfortunately, it would really help to shut the wet markets. Uh, You know, if, in fact, the Chinese government with all its powers could do that, what happens in China, unfortunately, is that things go underground really fast. And it's not just a matter of government action in China to shut down the wet markets, but it's also convincing the people who... Go to these wet markets and buy the meat that this is dangerous for them uh, now uh, these bat viruses these coronaviruses they leak out into the population of china every now and then uh, but in the old days um, villages that were situated near bat caves um, scientists have discovered that there are lots of people living in these villages that show signs of having been infected with some sort of coronavirus probably not the one that's sweeping around the world right now, but there's just a lot of traffic. There's a lot of cross-species jumping when viruses go from animals to people right around them. Uh, And it's not just happening in China. It's happening everywhere humans are in contact with wild animals, and you can think of lots of places where that occurs. Um, But in the old days, um, a virus would, you know, kind of, it wouldn't get into a lot of people. I mean, it would be an isolated place. Some people would get sick, and then it would kind of smolder away and die out. But today, um, we have two things going on in the human species that have never happened before in history. The first is the packing factor. Um, More than half of the people on the planet now live in cities close together. Um, where something can spread easily like a match thrown into a barn full of hay. and then secondly we have the mixing factor and that is rapid travel by airlines. So last year, 4.5 billion there were 4.5 billion passenger trips on airlines on in the world. and you know, think about the human population basically being thrown, into some kind of gigantic blender and being stirred up by airline travel so that if a virus gets anywhere, it's quickly gonna get mixed into the human population all around the planet. These are two things that are uh, really facilitating these outbreaks. And uh, I, I think that as time goes forward, we're gonna see more of them and they're gonna balloon faster.
3: Richard, wanna thank you so much for joining us today. Um, obviously, we'll come back to you again soon. We do appreciate your time. Richard Preston.
1: Good to be with
0: Squawk Pod is back after this. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track, we care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey
5: everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
0: Savings based on cost of Consumer cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. And that's Squawk Pad for today. It's Friday, so thank you for sticking with us and listening for another week. We're going to continue covering the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic If you have lost your job in recent weeks and want to talk about it, let us know. You can find us on Twitter via Squawk CNBC. Our morning show Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend.